You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Now, as a church, we are studying the book of Mark together. We're walking in the footsteps of Jesus, following him through the book of Mark. And uh, we've just seen him enter the city of Jerusalem, already having conflict in the temple. Uh, And today what we're going to see is there's going to be some colliding authority, colliding authority. The authority of Jesus Christ colliding with the authority of the Jewish religious system. And we're going to see Jesus here entering Jerusalem again, and he's going to be going back to the temple again today, and what we're going to see is rejection. We're going to see more and more rejection as Jesus is moving towards that cross. Just in a matter of days, he's going to be on that cross, and and the pathway to there is going to be ongoing opposition and rejection. We're going to see the Jewish council today, the Sanhedrin, is going to be pressing him harder and harder. But when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ and the message that he has for the world, some are going to accept him, but many are going to reject him. There are only two responses when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. There's only two responses available to the human heart when it comes to him. You either fully accept him for who he is and his message, or you outright deny him and reject the salvation that he offers. Only two options. There's no middle ground. And so the main point of this sermon, I'm going to give you right up front here today, and it is this. What I want you to walk away from today is this, is where Jesus is ultimately refused, resisted, and rejected, God's grace is ultimately removed. Where Jesus is ultimately refused, resisted, and rejected, God's grace is ultimately removed. We're going to see that from the text today. In fact, we're going to see Jesus sharing a parable, a bold, stinging parable directed right at the Jewish leaders in this text, and we're going to see that their time is up. God's patience has ended, and his plan for them is about to change. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel is an urgent message, because his grace towards this world does have an expiry date. Yes, our God is patient. Yes, he is full of mercy. Yes, he is kind. Yes, he is long-suffering. But when it comes to Jesus, when he is ultimately rejected, God's grace is ultimately removed. Well, as we have a look, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 27, and we're going to be going into chapter 12, verses up, up to verse 12. Mark chapter 11, verse 27 into chapter 12, all the way up to verse 12. I'm going to read that for you here, starting in verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that by your grace, by your mercy, you have gathered your saints, gathered um, your people together this morning uh, to lift your name high, to worship you in spirit and truth. And Lord, we pray that as your word is open before us, as, as, your, as your text that you have written through men by your Holy Spirit, as it is before us, it has so much to teach us. And today we pray that, that as we examine this parable, as we look at the authority of Jesus, and as we think about the rejection that was had in Jerusalem, Lord, would you prepare our hearts to receive this message so that we can respond to you in faith and repentance as well. Lord, we trust you by your Holy Spirit to reveal this to our hearts, and we ask that by your Spirit we would walk in light of this and bring pleasure to your eyes. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, where Jesus is ultimately refused, resisted, and rejected, God's grace is ultimately removed. Last week, as we studied chapter 11, verses 20 to 25, we witnessed Jesus using this cursed figless tree to teach about powerful prayer, right? You know, as Jesus is about to die in a matter of days, and and then he's going to rise from the grave, and then he's going to ascend to heaven very shortly, the only way his disciples would have access to power, to divine power, was going to be through prayer. And last week, we applied that to ourselves as well, that just like the disciples, we still need to access divine power, but we access it through prayer. Prayer that believes without question, prayer that asks without doubt, and prayer that forgives without limit. We see the apostles 
believed this. The early church believed this, and they practiced it. And you and I need to believe this as well, as the mission we have before us is so urgent. Now as we see Jesus and his disciples waking up again, and they're outside the walls, most likely they're in in Bethany, he gathers up his disciples, and he returns once again to Jerusalem, returning to the temple on this Tuesday morning before Good Friday. And as we look at this first few verses here, we're going to see that his authority is refused. His authority is refused. Back to verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. That's Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? This first section is all about authority. Colliding authority. Collision of authority between earthly authority and heavenly authority. As the Son of God is is entering his Father's house, the holy temple of Jerusalem, he's confronted by a competing authority. But only one authority is going to win. And so we see him here again, walking in the temple. He's in the court of the Gentiles again. He's returning to the place where he just furiously turned over those tables of the money changers and those who are selling pigeons. And he was teaching the people back in chapter 11, verse 17, saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer. For who? For all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking to destroy him. You always have to understand, they are seeking to destroy Jesus Christ. So here now we see two days later, Jesus is back, back in the temple. The memory of his outburst is still fresh, it's still alive in the temple, and he's walking around. And our text says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now these these chief priests and scribes, and elders are not just any random groups of people in the temple. I have a picture here of the council, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. These guys are the top brass of the temple. They're the, they're the big cheese when it comes to the temple. They rule it. In fact, together, these three groups made up what is known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council of the day. It was made up of 71 men. Uh, from, from these three groups, we see that the priests themselves were the most powerful men of the group. They oversaw all of the governance of the temple. Um, the temple had over 18,000 employees. And the elders were made up of Jewish aristocrats. They were rich political men. And then we have the scribes who were professional lawyers. They were trained in theology, in justice, and philosophy. And together, these three groups, the Sanhedrin, would comprise the Jewish high court. They'd be deciding on on cases of Jewish law, both civil and criminal. And they had the power to give out sentences of punishment, except they weren't allowed to give out capital punishment. That was up to the Roman government at that time. So for the day... These guys were the supreme justices over all things Judaism. They were the top. They were the ultimate authority. And so as Jesus is walking around and 
and he's most likely teaching as he's walking, they approach him. Verse 28, and they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, we don't know exactly what these things are that they're referring to, but it has something to do with Christ exercising authority. It's, it's pretty uh, safe to assume that this would include that recent disturbance in the temple when he's turning over the tables, tossing over the tables. It's a pretty authoritative thing to do. My father's house, he was saying. But it could also include his teaching. If you remember throughout the book of Mark, he, Jesus was always teaching with authority, not as the scribes. Mark 1, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Even after he delivered a man from an unclean spirit in, in chapter 1, verse 27, the people were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. It could also be his claim to forgive sin. We remember that. Or his calling out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes all about their traditions, right? Whatever case, these things that the Sanhedrin are bringing up comes down to authority. It all comes down to Authority, they say, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Remember, they're, they're, they're out to destroy him. We know that. And so they're trying to trip him up with this question of authority. But as Jesus always does, he doesn't answer them directly. He answers them with a question. He answers them with a counter-question. Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And so we see here that it just so happens that Jesus' question has everything to do with authority as well, colliding authorities. And his question was this, verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, this baptism of John that, that Jesus is referring to, it's not John's actual baptism, but it's, it's rather a, a reference to the whole prophetic ministry of John the Baptist. If you remember all the way back to the very beginning of our journey through the book of Mark, back in chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, we learn that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. They were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John the Baptist was, was widely regarded by the people as a true prophet, and they were obeying him. They were obeying his authority as a true prophet by believing in this baptism of repentance. And of course, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, of course they knew this. And so Jesus places the Sanhedrin between a rock and a hard place with this question. Verse 31 says, They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then didn't you believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. Why? 
for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It all comes down to authority. And the non-answer that the scribes and the elders and the chief priests give just reveals that they aren't truly evaluating Jesus for who he really is. They're just outright refusing the evidence. And his authority was refused in that. It still comes down to his authority. Whose authority are you following? By what authority do you live? We either have to accept the authority of Jesus Christ or we reject it. There's only two ways. And the problem that we have today is not the evidence. It's not the evidence. It's the authority of God. Just like these Jewish leaders, we think that we are our own authority. We think that we're the captains of our own destiny. We don't naturally want to be ruled. We want our own way. We don't want Jesus messing up our plans. We don't want to have to submit. We don't want to have to obey. Friends, the universal problem of humanity is that we don't want to fall under God's authority. It's not the evidence. The evidence is in. And the question is, is are we willing to fully submit to God's rightful authority over his creation? We are his creation. He has every right over us. And are we willing to fall under his rightful authority or are we going to reject him to our own destruction? A.W. Pink says it this way. He says, thousands are deceived into supposing that they have accepted Christ as their personal Savior who have not first received him as their Lord. The Son of God did not come here to save his people in their sin, but from their sin. To be saved from sins is to be saved from ignoring and despising the authority of God. It is to abandon the course of self-will and self-pleasing. It is to forsake our way. It is to surrender to God's authority, to yield to his dominion, to give ourselves over to be ruled by him. It comes down to authority. Friends, we have authority issues. Are we accepting his authority? Or like the Jewish leaders, are we refusing his authority? As we roll into chapter 12, we're going to see that this isn't the end of the conversation. It's not the end of the conversation with the elders, the scribes, and the priests. Now that Jesus has stumped them to the point that they have no answer, he gives them a bold indictment in the form of a parable. Remember, a parable is an earthly story teaching heavenly truth, right? Using practical, everyday things to teach about the eternal truth of God. And so he gives them a parable. Interesting about this parable, Jesus would often give parables to conceal the truth from some and reveal the truth to others. But this one is so blatantly obvious, it's understood Right away. Verse 12, he began to speak to them in parables. And he said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress 
and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. We're going to stop right there. Because what we're seeing here is as God's authority is refused... This parable is revealing us first here that his pursuit is also resisted. His pursuit is resisted. Jesus spoke in parables. This is an earthly picture teaching about greater truth, and he often used these parables to conceal. But look at the revelation here, and it's going to hit the Sanhedrin square in the face. Although this parable is maybe somewhat mysterious to us, it is so clear and it is so masterful and it is so powerful as it indicts the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. He starts by saying a man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. The moment that Jesus spoke these words, the Jewish leaders would have known exactly what Jesus is up to. They would have heard this story so many times before from the scrolls of Isaiah. We read this this morning. Going back to Isaiah chapter 5 in the first two verses, he writes, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. We see Isaiah using this analogy of a vineyard to speak of God's beloved people, how God planted them. Why? To produce fruit. Throughout Scripture, Israel is often compared to a planted vineyard. Way back in Exodus chapter 15, verse 17, as, as Israel sang and they rejoiced over the victory through the Red Sea, how God has saved them from Egypt, one line in the song that they sing, Exodus 15, verse 17, they sing, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Also, the psalmist writes in Psalm 80, verses 8 to 10, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, and it filled the land. According to Scripture, Israel was a vineyard planted by God for God. In fact, grapes and and vines were actually the sacred symbol for the nation of Israel. Throughout their history, instead of putting faces of men on their coins, they would stamp images of grapes and leaves and vines. And even when you think of where Jesus is standing in the temple right now, he's, he's in Solomon's portico, 
where he's, where he's standing and he's teaching this parable, as you would look around, the temple was decorated with elaborate gold and jewel-encrusted carvings of what? Of grapevines. The temple itself was to be the winepress. It was the epicenter of the spiritual harvest. But as the landowner, God leaves his vine, his people, in the hands of the Jewish leaders, the tenants of this parable. The winepress, the temple, becomes a den of thieves. We've already seen that. And they want that fruit for themselves. They want the inheritance for themselves. And this went on and on and on throughout the history of Israel. Over and over again, Israel is constantly rejecting God's authority, rejecting his plan, rejecting his ways, because they want to go their own way. But God didn't give up on them. Jesus continues in the parable, When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent him another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Who's he talking about here? Well, as wicked as the tenants were, as, as wicked as Israel's leaders were throughout the centuries, God didn't give up on them. He kept sending servants to them. He kept sending prophets, judges, to teach them the truth so that they could turn from their wicked ways and turn back to God. The intent was to have a ripe harvest for the Lord. But over and over again, Israel would disobey. They would reject the message of the prophets. Why? For the love of the world. They love the world. They love themselves. In fact, more than just rejecting the prophets' message, they would also get violent with the prophets. They'd even kill them. If you remember the prophet Elijah, he had to flee the wilderness in order to escape Jezebel. That's in 1 Kings 19. Isaiah the prophet was so despised that according to Jewish history, tradition, he was sawn in half, killed. Also the prophet Jeremiah was stoned to death in 2 Chronicles 24-21. The New Testament looks back on these things in Hebrews eleven thirty seven, and it says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. But as wicked as they were, God kept sending prophets to his people. He sent servants, messengers, warning them of their sin, pointing them to repentance. One thing that's revealed here is the kindness and the patience of God with his people over and over again. They sin against him and he sends them messengers out of love so that they would turn to him. But yet they chose their sin. Servant after servant was rejected. And it says, so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Even the last and greatest prophet, 
John the Baptist? Remember the one who was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins? What happened to him? John was beheaded. John was beheaded for calling out sin. This parable reveals so boldly and so clearly that the choice vine of Israel refused God's authority. And they were resisting his relentless pursuit of them. His pursuit is resisted. Our God is a relentless pursuer of sinners. That's who he is. Over the thousands of years he was with the Jews, we see him continually pursuing his beloved people, but they ultimately resisted him. And as I think about God's relentless pursuit of sinners, I think of myself, and I'm sure you guys share these same stories. In my life, he was pursuing me for 30 years. How relentlessly, how lovingly he kept intervening in my life with the gospel, but I kept resisting him. I wanted to go my own way. I wanted the world. I wanted to hold on to my sin. And I most definitely did not want to be ruled. And so I resisted his messengers. Sunday school teachers Youth pastors, my pastor growing up, sharing the message with me, me having some kind of a shallow faith, but not really trusting, not really being transformed until one day when I was older, I was confronted with my own wretchedness, my own sinful wickedness in light of a holy God. And I needed to, God brought me to a place of repentance. He broke me. And he taught me that I needed to bank everything on Jesus Christ alone. Everything. I'm bringing nothing. And he saved me. I know you guys share those same stories. But just look at that. Look at the kindness. Look at the love. Look at the patience. Look at the relentless pursuit of God for us sinners. Those who don't deserve it. Those who keep resisting him. Those who keep sinning against him. And yet he pursues the old preachers would call him the hound of heaven. He seeks, he finds, he sends messengers, and he saves. So let me ask you, are you still running? Are you still resisting? Are you still refusing? Maybe like the priests and the scribes and the elders, maybe you're still resisting. You're refusing to trust in Jesus for who he is and his powerful, authoritative message of good news. If that's you today, we need to stop refusing. You need to stop resisting. By the grace of God, he is after you. He is after your heart. And he wants to transform you fully. The reason you're here this morning with these people, these are all messengers around you, messengers of the gospel. And if you don't truly believe, if you keep on resisting, you're resisting to your demise. God's heart towards you is salvation. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's God's heart towards the world. 
And so our plea for you, our message to you, is to cry out today, cry out to him today in, in repentance and faith. Ask him to save you. Ask him to forgive you. Turn away from your wicked ways and trust and bank everything on Jesus Christ for salvation. This is the message Jesus wants to share with his people, especially as he's spending the final days with them in Jerusalem. He wants them to believe in him. He wants them to accept his authority. He wants them to receive that pursuit of them. But as he goes on in this parable, we see that the wicked tenants, the Jewish leaders, want nothing to do with him. We see here, that his sonship is rejected. After all the servants were beaten and the final ones were killed, Jesus says in verse 6 that the landowner, that's God himself, he had still one other. He had a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus Christ, the the beloved Son of God, who we just witnessed entering Jerusalem with such royal praise, mounted on a donkey, on, on Palm Sunday, would be just in a matter of days condemned by his own people, killed by the Romans outside the city, outside the vineyard. As Jesus tells this parable, he's looking directly in the eyes of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, those who are leading his people astray looking at those who are rejecting the very beloved God himself, the heir of the throne of God. Their wicked greed and their unrighteousness has led them to kill the very God who they claim to worship. When you reject God's authority, When you reject the whole testimony of God's word, when you reject the gospel, you reject Jesus. You reject Jesus, you're murdering him in your heart. As the Jewish council is going to reject him and they're going to condemn him to death, when we condemn him in our heart, we condemn him to death because of our sin. We are actually joining We're joining Satan. We're joining evil. We're joining those who reject him. Just think of the crowds at the end of Mark as they shout, crucify him. Crucify him. That's the crowds joining. Kill Jesus. We join in those judgments as well. We join in the whipping. We join in the beating. We join in the pounding of the nails. We join in, in the scourging. We partake in the killing of Jesus as we reject him. We reject the greatest thing that has ever been done to us, done for us. We treat him as if he's garbage. We throw him outside of the vineyard. 
Every time we refuse Jesus, every time we resist him, every time we reject Jesus, we join the forces of darkness that killed him. As you look at these wicked tenants, we need to look at ourselves. So as this parable concludes, we see that there are ultimate consequences for ultimate rejection. As we ultimately refuse his authority, as we resist his pursuit, as we reject his son, we see that the consequences for this is that his grace is removed. His grace is removed. Verse 9, the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? I want to underline that one. And throughout this week, just meditate on that question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Friends, according to Jesus, God's patience with his people has an expiry date. It has a time limit. Although God is long-suffering, although he is gracious, although he is merciful towards his people, God is not infinitely patient. He is not infinitely gracious towards those who reject him. He is not infinitely merciful to those who resist him. We see here that the owners of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard, the God of Israel, he responds to their ultimate rejection. And he responds to their ultimate rejection by removing his grace. It says he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. His grace is timed out. And it's ultimately removed. You see, this vineyard has produced wild grapes, like Isaiah said. The harvest has been stolen. As Jesus destroyed that figless tree, he's going to destroy the fruitless garden. Yes, he is a loving God, but he's also a righteous God. And his grace has timed out towards his people here. And we know that by studying history in a matter of 40 years, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. This ruler comes along, Domitian, and his brother Titus, military commander from the Roman military. 70 AD, they come and they destroy the temple completely. And the Jews would scatter all over the world. And to this day, the temple has not been rebuilt. I have a little, quick little video here that Jason's going to play. But it's going to show you, there's the temple in Jesus' day. And you'll see what it looks like today. Today, there's an Islamic mosque standing in its place. The Dome of the Rock. God's grace has been removed from that place. His grace has been removed from the old covenant faith, from the old covenant people. 
the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to them. But their ultimate rejection leads to his ultimate rejection of them. He has been patient up to this point. But he gives the vineyard to others. Now, who are the others? Who are the others? The others is Jesus Christ and his apostles, his disciples who follow him, true followers of Jesus Christ, the church, the new covenant people, those who follow Jesus, those who believe in this risen Savior. The very first church was largely Jewish. The twelve disciples, apostles, were Jewish. In the book of Acts, as the Holy Spirit comes in and gives birth to the church, the Jewish people from all over the world. But as they were commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, they took the message to Gentiles. They took the message to people who aren't Jews. To the whole world. They turned the world upside down, advancing the gospel across borders under the powerful sovereign hand of God. Yes, it was a removal of grace from the old covenant, but it was an explosion of grace throughout the new covenant by Christ's blood. No more temple made by hands, but a temple built by the Holy Spirit. You are the temple. No more high priests, but a priesthood of all believers. That's you again. No more animal sacrifices, because the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, is once given for all. No more sacrifices, but living sacrifices right here. It's no longer about one nation, but it's about a global heavenly kingdom. The gospel that was carried and spoken to the ends of the earth has come to you and me, and it is still advancing across this planet. Brothers and sisters, you are now the vineyard. You are a part of the choice vine. And we have a caretaker. We have Jesus Christ and he is producing fruit in us by his spirit. And that garden, that vineyard, is producing spiritual fruit. And so, yes, his grace was removed from this faithful or faithless Israel. And it has been given to all who, rather than refusing, rather than resisting, rather than rejecting Jesus Christ, accept him, welcome him, and embrace Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world. And then we see Jesus closing this, this damning parable by quoting the hope that is found amidst this rejection. Psalm 119, or 118, you remember... When they were coming, when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, the people were, were singing and, and shouting scripture from Psalm 118. And so Jesus says this, have you not read this scripture? He's talking right to the Sanhedrin, those who are, are so religious. Have you not read this scripture? These are the people that should know this. Have you not read this? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. As the priests and the elders and the scribes and the Jewish people who were believing their lies and rejecting Jesus, we see that their rejection is a fulfillment of God's sovereign plan. As much as they wanted to stop Jesus in his tracks, what they ended up doing by killing him was advancing the gospel. They fulfilled God's plan all along. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. The plan to send his son to live the life that you and I couldn't live, to die the death that we all deserve, to rise from the grave and ascend to heaven, and now that he rules over his whole church. We see the salvation and the hope and the promise of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone that they rejected, but it is the cornerstone of the temple of the living God. Again, that's you. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's amazing. And the Sanhedrin, they understood what Jesus was saying. He was coming in loud and clear. This was not masked. They got it. Verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew it. And so they left him and went away. You know, the history of Israel is so rich. It is so full of God's grace and mercy. But here we see clearly that his grace, his mercy, his kindness, and his patience has timed out. Because the new covenant has come. Jesus Christ, the new covenant, in his blood has come. And so for us, living on this side of that, We can't be presuming upon his grace either. For the temple and for Israel, their time was up. It expired. God's grace was removed and he gave it to others. So ask yourselves, am am I presuming upon the grace of God today? Am I still refusing? Am I still resisting? Am I still rejecting the authority of the Son of God? Maybe in your life, maybe you're planning on coming to him later, right? You get too many good things to try to do right now. You know, when I'm an adult, maybe I'll come to him later. Maybe there's some adults that are waiting to become adults and think they're going to come to him later. Maybe there's some things you're thinking you need to do before you come to him. Don't gamble with his grace. Take this parable as a warning. You don't know the day or the hour of your life. You don't know the day when it's going to end, but God does. You don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. God does. And it may be too late. Don't squander your life. Don't presume upon his grace. Trust the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of our faith. He is the one who was rejected by men, but whose sacrifice on the cross was accepted by God so that we could have eternal forgiveness, salvation, life in his glory. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Where Jesus is ultimately refused, resisted, and rejected, God's grace is ultimately removed. But when his authority is accepted, his pursuit is welcomed, and his sonship is embraced, his hope is restored. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot here in your text. There's a lot of history about your people of old, of the old covenant, and, and, and how you, by your grace and your long-suffering and your, your loving kindness, you were constantly pursuing them. And yes, they had moments when they turned back to you, but largely, Lord, like you said in your word, they were stiff-necked donkeys. When we think of that, we're reminded of ourselves. Lord, we thank you for showing us today that your grace is full. It is, it is strong. It is good. It is long-suffering. But we see that it timed out with your people of the old covenant. And Lord, as your people of the new covenant, we don't want to presume upon your grace today. Our lives, our salvation is urgent. It needs to happen now. And we thank you that you give us this message to teach us to follow you, even as Christians, even as those who are saved, and we know it, we, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We just sang about that. We resist your authority at times. We, we refuse you. Lord, we pray today that you would grant us repentance by your mercy and grace, that you would constantly be teaching us that we need to be walking in repentance and faith, following after you by the power of your Spirit, and Lord, we also look at this message as so urgent for the world, those who don't know you. Lord, they don't know the day or the hour. We pray that you would save, and you would save through us, that we are now your messengers. We are now your servants. And you have sent us. That's why we're here in South Calgary. Help us to not be so inward that we're not outward, that we're not pursuing the lost. Lord, use this text in our life this week. Pray that we wouldn't just go from here and just be hearers. Lord, help us to be doers as well. Lord, we trust you. We know that you are always faithful. And we thank you for the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.